You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. I want to do a quick read, a a 40,000-foot flyover, if you will, of the book of Jude, uh, and then we'll go back and we will dissect it and look into it and and mine out the beautiful nuggets of gold that are there. But let's first do a flyover read in the book of Jude together. Let me pray as we open God's word. Jesus, we thank you so much for being our savior, for your intense passion to save us, for your desire to reveal yourself to us that we might know you, and for preserving your word throughout all of human history, so many attempts to destroy your word, and yet you have preserved it, and here it is in our hands, a divine miracle. The inspired, infallible word of God delivered to us that we might know you. Lord, open our eyes now that we might see and understand your heart, your mind, your will, that we might know you, for this is why we have come, this is why we've gathered And we ask for your presence to be with us. And we ask it collectively in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Uh, Verse one, let's read together. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, to those who are sanctified by God the Father, and to those who are preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. They are ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. And they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though once you knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, the great day of the Lord. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, they are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Uh, Jump over to verse 20. But you, beloved... Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but on others, save them with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forevermore. The author of the book of Jude is uh, named Jude. Uh, His name was originally Judas. Jude is a shortened version of Judas. Uh, Jude was one of the four half-brothers of Jesus. There was James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Jesus' four brothers. Jesus' four half-brothers. Same mom, different dad, of course. 
Uh, Judas, a very common name among Jews during Jesus's lifetime and that era of history. And the reason is because there was a national admiration of a man named Judas Maccabeus. Uh, how many of you have ever heard, I'm just curious, how many of you have ever heard of Judas Maccabeus? Uh, there are books he has written uh, about this, uh, you know, called the Maccabees. Um, Judas Maccabeus. He was a Jewish guerrilla leader who delivered Israel from the cruel hands of a wicked king named Antiochus IV. Antiochus called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes? Uh, yeah, that was a subtag he gave himself as a title. Epiphanes means God revealed. In other words, he thought of himself as a superstar. Look at me. Antiochus Epiphanes. That's a tongue twister, isn't it? Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. That's how big his ego was. Uh, he was a Seleucid king of Syria. And Antikia, Antikia, oh my goodness, Antichius Epiphanes uh, wanted to Hellenize the Jews and put an end to Judaism. In other words, he wanted to wipe out the Jews. He, for, he forbid their Jewish religious practices and their sacrifices, and he commanded that all of the copies of scripture be burned. He wanted to destroy the Torah, the law, and all of the prophets, and all of the Psalms, and all of the Proverbs. And he issued an edict, if you were found with a scroll of the Holy Scriptures, it was to be burned, and you were to be killed. He wanted to wipe out the Jewish faith. In 167 BC, that was the time that Antiochus Epiphanes uh, uh, was in power. In 167 BC, he captured Jerusalem. And he went into the Jewish temple and he did something incredibly evil. He desecrated it. He caused an abomination. He slaughtered a pig. You know how Jews feel about uh, unclean pigs, I mean animals. Uh, he slaughtered a pig in the Jewish temple. And he uh, set it up as a, uh, as a uh, you know, there on the, in the temple. And he put in all the Greek gods, uh, Zeus and everything else, inside the Jewish temple. Idols of all these, these pagan gods. He took all of the gold and the silver in the temple. The temple was incredibly well, you know, the, the, the gold lampstand and the, uh, you know, all the bronze labor. He took all the precious metals out of the temple for his own uh, finances. And he desecrated the temple. He did horrible things. He commanded the Jews not to circumcise their sons. Again, he wanted to stop Judaism. And if they did circumcise their sons, he commanded that their sons uh, and their mothers uh, would be strangled and killed. He tortured and killed many Jews. Antichios uh, IV put 10,000 Jews into captivity, and he killed and, and, and tortured more than 40,000 Jews. So that gives you an idea of what was going on at that time. Judas Maccabees led a Jewish revolt against Antichios Epiphanes, and he restored Jerusalem. In 164 AD, he reconquered uh, Jerusalem and he restored the temple. He removed all the pagan idols out of the temple and, uh, you know, all the, all the junk. And he restored Jewish worship back to the Jews and, and restored Jerusalem. And the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah, which means dedication, commemorates the restoration of the temple. And all that to say, Judas was a very common name during Jesus's lifetime. It was uh, a, a super common name like Jason or, uh, you know, whatever, you get the idea. Uh, 
And uh, Judas was a really common name until Judas Iscariot. And Judas Iscariot put a stink bomb on the name Judas. Nobody ever wanted to be called Judas anymore. And so to uh, distinguish between Judas Iscariot and Judas, Jesus' brother, Judas changed his name to Jude. And so here we have this book of Jude written by Jesus' brother. Uh, Very interesting to me that Jesus came from a big family. And I think that's kind of cool, right? Uh, Jude was Jesus' half-brother. Jesus was the firstborn, of course, different father, virgin birth, uh, the firstborn. Jude was the youngest. Uh, There were five boys in Jesus' family and at least two girls that we know of. So at least seven in the family, maybe more. Uh, And something very interesting, Jude and all his siblings were not followers of Jesus Christ. We know this from Mark chapter 3. They didn't believe that Jesus uh, was the Messiah. And you can understand why. They grew up with Jesus. Jesus lived for 30 years before he ever started his ministry. His ministry was only three and a half years. And so for the majority, 30 years of Jesus' life, they knew him as what? Their brother. And to show you how human Jesus was, fully human, Jesus never did one miracle for his own self. You know, he never made the Legos fly out of Jude's hand and fly into his hand because Jude was playing with his toys, right? Never. He never did miracles to make him win the game. He lived like a regular guy. And he lived so much like a regular guy that his own brothers and sisters had a hard time believing he was the Messiah. At the baptism of John the Baptist, Jesus begins his ministry. We hear, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God speaking from the heavens. And the divinity of Jesus revealed once again at the baptism. And Jesus begins his ministry. And all of his family were in awe. They couldn't believe the size of the crowds. They couldn't believe the following and how many. And they couldn't believe Jesus' dedication and devotion to this ministry. He was going nonstop. Morning and late night and just countless hours nonstop preaching about the kingdom of God and teaching who and revealing who God is. Well, his brothers knew he was a good teacher, but they thought this, he's lost his mind. He's gone too far. And they, they were worried about him. And they didn't believe until, until he was crucified and resurrected three days later. And at his resurrection, they all knew, they all believed, oh my gosh, our brother was God in the flesh. Our brother is the Messiah. Our brother, we had God dwelling among us and their eyes were opened and they saw Jesus for who he really was. Interesting that they all became believers. Uh, James, Jesus's half brother, became a leader in the Jerusalem church. He became an apostle. Uh, Eusebius, uh, the bishop of Caesarea and a great church historian of the early church, tells us that Jude also became a leader in the early church. He wasn't an apostle, but he became a leader in the early church. He was an evangelist. And Jude was such a leader that the Eusebius tells us that even his children and his grandchildren became leaders in the early church in the ages that followed. And so all of that to give a little background of who Jude is, 
and what happened in his life and what was happening at the time of him writing this book. Uh, Let's dive in now. Let's do a deep dive into the verses that we read. Uh, Verse 1, are you there with me? Jude was Judas. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Uh, A couple of things here. Uh, What do you notice? Who does he call himself a brother of? James, his brother James. Uh, It shows his humility, doesn't it? If you wanted to boast, if you wanted to brag, what would you say? I'm the brother of Jesus. Uh, That's like a mic drop, right? Like uh, there could be 2,000 people in the room and you stand up, I'm the brother of Jesus. Everybody else sit down, you come up here, Uh, right? We want to hear from you, right? But he doesn't do that. And here we see he's been shaped by Jesus. He's learned from Jesus. He has the values and he walks in the humility. He doesn't call himself. He doesn't think being a brother of Jesus is something worthy to be grasped or to be claimed. He says, I'm just the brother of James. And notice what he calls himself, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus. You might want to circle the word bondservant. It's a great word, bondservant. The Greek word is doulos. Here's what it means. Uh, It's bond slave is the actual word. If you were a slave, you could, uh, slave had nothing to do with race. It's not like uh, uh, American slavery that we so brutally uh, despise. Uh, uh, Biblical slavery was different. If you had to borrow money, if you got in financial trouble, if you got destitute, you could become someone's slave to work off your debt. And so maybe you owed somebody a ton of money. You say, I can't pay you, but I tell you what, I'll be your slave. And you would work for them in the Jewish culture. You would work for them for six years. You would be their slave. And it was just like being an employee. And you'd mow their lawn. You'd, you'd pull their weeds. You'd do, you know, fix their plumbing. Whatever it is you did. I don't know. Uh, but you would work for them for six years. On the seventh year, you were released from your debt. You were released from being a slave. And you were set free. Um, it wasn't a lifetime of servitude. It was uh, for six years to pay off a debt. <clears throat> now, during that, that, that time, let's say, for example, you had a master, an employer, who was just a great boss, and you loved working for him, and you're thriving in his house, and you're doing well, and, and he's, he's treating you good, and maybe you've had a couple kids while you were there with him, and and things are going good. And you would come to the end and you could say, I don't want my service to you to end. I want to keep going. You would then be called a bond slave. And there was a ceremony that went along with it. You would put your ear on the doorpost of the house and they would run all through your ear to pierce your ear to the door of the house. And it would mean you're now a member of this household. Uh, And then you would wear an earring in that ear to show I'm a slave, yes, but I'm a slave by choice because I love my master. I have a good master and I thrive here in his house. And that is the word that uh, Jude chooses to use. Paul would choose to use that also. He would say, I am a bond slave of Jesus Christ, a servant by choice. Because my master is so good. And look what he says. To those who are three verbs. I want you to circle them and underline them. To those who are first verb. What? Called. I want you to know something. The fact that you are here today. Reveals that you were called by Jesus Christ. Jesus would say. You did not choose me. I chose you. I called you. I called you to myself. And you say, hey, listen, pastor, not so fast. I'm just here. I'm just checking it out. I was invited by a friend. I don't even believe any of this stuff. I think you guys are nuts. Uh, Music was pretty good, though. Uh, (laughs) Hey, welcome. Glad you're here. I want you to know something, though. You're here because Jesus is calling you. Welcome to the sovereignty of God, right? This is Jesus calling on your life. And you have been called. And here's what you've been called to. To know him. 
to learn of his great love for you. That you would be so in awe of his love for you that you would want to follow him and know him, a God who loves you like this. To those who are called by Jesus Christ. Second verb, what is it? Sanctified. Some of your versions say loved. Uh, uh, the, the majority text, uh, there's different... Well, I won't get into all that. The majority text is sanctified. The critical text, uh, small variant, is, is loved. Either way, uh, sanctified means set apart. You're set apart by God. Uh, you're set apart so that you might know him, so that he might pour his blessings upon you, so that he might build you as a son or a daughter and put his umbrella of protection over your life. You are set apart to him or you are loved by him. And look at this, the, the next verb, what? Preserved, preserved. You are preserved by Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means that even when you rebel against him, and even when you want to backslide and run your own course and go your own way, he says, oh, 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 no, 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 no. I love you. I will bring you back to myself. I will preserve you. I will save you. I will bring you. I hold you in my hand. Jesus says, all that the Father has given me are mine, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. I am preserved. What an amazing introduction. Jude, this bondservant of Jesus, called, sanctified, and preserved by Jesus Christ. Look at verse two. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is our inheritance in Jesus Christ. Endless mercy, incredible peace, and love abounding. This peace is an interesting word. Oh, how we need peace in our life. And when we uh, become children of God, when we make Jesus our Lord and Savior, we have God's peace in two ways. One, we have peace with God. I am no longer uh, afraid of God's judgment. I am no longer worried about God punishing me for my sins, which are many. I am at peace with God because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for me. That is the gospel. He took the punishment of my sins. And now as a result of him doing that, we are at peace with God. But not only are we at peace with God, we also have the peace of God. What is that? Well, the peace of God is that no matter what we are going through in life, we have this assurance that he is sovereign. We have this assurance that he is our father, that he's in control of our life. And we, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because his rod and his staff, they comfort me, they guide me, and I know I'm his. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And then in the end, when it's over, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I have not only the peace with God, but I have the peace of God. Uh, not yesterday, but the Saturday before, I did a memorial service here for a 32-year-old boy. So tragic. And his father, uh, I have, my heart was just broken. You can imagine losing a son at 32 and all the pain he was going through. And how comforting it is to know that even in the midst of all that pain, there is a peace that surpasses understanding when we belong to Jesus Christ, when he is the Lord and Savior of our life. There is a peace that just surpasses understanding. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Look at verse four, 3 for me. Verse 3. What is the first word of verse 3? Beloved. Beloved of who? Beloved of Jude? No, 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 no. Beloved of who? Oh, my goodness. You are the beloved of the creator of the universe. You are the beloved of King Jesus, 
Uh, Beloved, be loved. You are loved by God. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith. Jude says, what I really wanted, what I planned on writing to you about was our common salvation. I had every intent of writing to you a letter about, man, just how good it is to be a son and a daughter of Jesus Christ. To know that our sins are forgiven. To know that he fills us with his Holy Spirit. To lead, guide, and direct us into all truth. To a spirit dwelling with us, living inside of us, that is the spirit of Christ that will take the words and the teachings of Christ and remind me of his words and his teaching in everything that I go through in life so that when I have someone yelling and screaming at me, I will have the words of Christ in my mind reminding me how I should respond so that when I'm going through a marriage and an issue in my family, I can have the words of Christ in leading and guiding and directing me into all truth so that I'm, as I'm a businessman, I've got this deal. I can have the words of Christ, the teachings of the Bible, the instruction and wisdom to bring discernment and wisdom into my life that I might be a successful businessman full of integrity and character, a reputation that is building and my business expanding and my relationships with others improving because I walk in the ways of the Lord. And here Jude would say, I wanted to write to you about all of that, our common salvation. But he says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. Something happened, the Holy Spirit led, led Jude, and he intended to write one thing, and he ended up with something different. And I tell you, as a pastor, I can tell you how often this happens. I'll start a sermon, and I'll begin praying, and man, I'll realize, oh, we're going a different direction, man, uh, from what I thought, right? Um, I love, uh, anyway, I'll stop there. Um, <laughs> I found it necessary to write to you to contend earnestly for the faith. Over the word contend, you can write the word agonize. The Greek word is agonizo, which where we get our word agonize, right? Uh, To agonize earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. Uh, The series title of our book of Jude is Contending for the Real Faith. Uh, That's what he instructs us to do. Why? Here's why. Well, look, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. Interesting word. How did they come in? They crept in unnoticed. They slithered in unnoticed. Slithered into where? Into the church. Interesting. They crept in unnoticed. How did that happen? Well, it's it's how the kingdom works. It's how God has set it up. It's not his will that these uh, people would creep in, but God has allowed it in his sovereignty. Jesus would tell a parable. They were asking him. Jesus kept preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm with you. The kingdom of heaven is here. You can live in the kingdom right now. And so the disciples would ask, well, what is the kingdom like? And Jesus said, well, here's what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a landowner who had a field. And he sowed good seed in the field. And the seed began to grow and it began to uh, 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 you know, uh, come to come to fruit and and. And one of the servants came to the landowner and said, Master, didn't you plant good seed in the field? He said, yes. Why then are all these tares growing in the wheat? A tear was a weed that grew and it looked exactly like wheat until 
it was time to bear fruit, until it was time to produce grain. And then when it was time to produce grain, it never produced. It, then you could tell it's a weed. He said, Master, how did all these tares get in the field? Didn't you plant good seed? Yes, I did. Well, then how did all these tares come? He said, well, an enemy has done this. An enemy has come in, and during the night, and he's planted bad seed. And the servant says, well, do you want us to then rip out the tares? And he says, no, no, no. If you do that, you will damage the wheat. Let both grow together until the harvest. And then at the harvest, I will gather the wheat into my barn. And I will burn the tares with fire. A picture of the kingdom. We see that Jesus, one of his disciples, even one of his own, ruined the name forever. The name? Judas used to be a great name. Now, oh, kind of stinky name. But he was one of the 12. A tear among the wheat. Why? Because certain men have crept in unnoticed. And look what he says about them. Who were long ago were marked out for this condemnation. They are ungodly men. And these ungodly men do two things. I'd like you to number them. Number one, they turn the grace of God into lewdness. They turn the grace of God into lewdness. I want you to know God's grace to us in Jesus Christ is mind-blowing. It is unbelievable. It is better than you even know it is. It is phenomenal. His mercies are new, what? Morning by morning. What does that mean? It means we had a bunch of sins yesterday. But God in his mercy, God in his grace, is covering all of those. And God wants to bless us. He wants to pour out his goodness to us. No matter how many times I sin, no matter how many times I stumble, no matter how many times I mess up, he says, I forgive you. I forgive you. Yeah, but Lord, I really blew it yesterday. Hey, no problem. Now get up and walk with me today. Let's get on the right path today. And I love that. I find it absolutely incredible. God, you're amazing. You mean you don't want to punish me? No, I don't want to punish you. I want to forgive you. I want to give you mercy. Uh, you, you mean you're not, going to, you're not going to spank me? No, I'm not going to spank you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to bless you when you don't deserve it. I want to pour all kinds of abounding blessings on your life. I want to use you even today. Let's go. Let's get on the right path together. And that is God's amazing grace. It is mind-blowing. It is unlike any other love, any other relationship you have ever known. And because of that, it's hard for us to even fathom how rich and how free the grace of God is. In every human relationship you have, it's somewhat of a uh, earn your way. It's some of a, hey, I'll be good to you and you'll be good to me. Uh, we'll, we'll do this together. And, and net, you, don't have, you don't have any kind of relationship where, where you totally wrong the other person and the other person comes and says, no problem, I want to dump lavish blessings on you today. And yet that is our relationship with God through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. That even though I've messed up and sinned against him, he has a boatload of blessing that he wants to pour on me today. And when we understand this, his grace changes everything. You will wake up in the morning and the air will smell sweeter. You will go through your day and you will just be, oh, Lord, your ways are amazing. It is so true that grace changes everything. That's why they write songs about it called Amazing Grace. It is mind-blowing. His grace and his mercy is so good. 
and you want to just see how abounding and, and broad it is, you are under an umbrella of grace in Jesus Christ. Grace means God's riches poured out upon you at Christ's expense. And his grace is so abounding. Take a look at this verse in Romans chapter 5. I love this verse. Uh, let me hear you read this in a unified, loud, thundering voice. For if by one man's offense, that's Adam's sin, death reigned through the one, how much more those who receive an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. How many of you struggle with your sin nature? How many of you tire of your sin nature? How many of you wish you you didn't have a sin nature? Uh, Yeah, man, I'd raise everything I got, man. Let me raise every limb. Let me raise my eyebrows. Let me raise everything. I would would love not to have a sin nature. Well, how'd you get it? Well, I inherited it through Adam. And if by one man's offense, that sin nature reigned in my life, How much more we will receive what? An abundance of grace. If my sin nature affects every pore in my body, and it does, how much more his grace will be upon me. Oh, the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ that takes my sin upon his own shoulders so that his riches and grace and mercy can be poured upon us, beloved, the loved of God. Uh, Look what the rest of the verse says. For as by one man's disobedience, as by Adam's sin, many were made sinners. Read with me. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, where sin abounded, Grace abounded much more. Wow. If by one man's disobedience, by Adam's sin, we all became sinners, this passage is telling us, oh, how much more, by the hyperabundance of God's grace, by one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, all of us will be made righteous. Oh, my goodness. And where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Can you believe that's in the Bible? You see, what does that do? That gives me total freedom. That when I mess up, I don't have to pout. I don't have to, uh, you know, pay penance. I don't have to uh, beat myself. And I can just say, Jesus, thank you so much for your grace. I want to move forward with you. I've never been loved by anybody like you. You're amazing. And that is what transforms our life. The Bible says that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Lord, your ways are so good. I want to walk in your ways, not my ways. Paul would say it is the love of Christ that constrains me. I mean, like, where else am I going to go? Well, I mean, how, where, I mean, where am I going to have this umbrella of love over me? Oh, the grace of Jesus Christ is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. And so here he says, uh, these certain men have crept in unnoticed long ago who were marked out for this condemnation. They're ungodly men, and they do two things. Put a little number one right here. The first thing they do is they turn the grace of God into lewdness. What does that mean? It means that instead of appreciating the grace of God, And instead of allowing it to move their heart to love and appreciation for this God who loves us so selflessly. It means that they just sin. And they miss the heart of God completely. They have no heart for God. They just say, let's just sin. God's grace will cover us. Wait, let's just sleep together. God's grace will cover us. Well, I can steal on this business deal. I can cheat. I can cook the books. God's grace will cover us. And they turn the grace of Jesus Christ into lewdness, into a license to sin. Why? Because they totally do not understand the heart of God, the love of God the Father to us. And they turn the grace of God into lewdness. Here's the second thing they do. They deny, they put a little number two right here in front of deny, 
they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is interesting. He says they deny the only Lord God. How many, God, how many Lords are there? There's one. And then he says, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that makes two. Unless they are one and the same. And they are. Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. And you say, well, how do they deny the only Lord God? How do they deny uh, the Lord Jesus? Here's how. When, when I say, hey, well, let's just sleep together. Uh, God's grace will cover us. Now Jesus is no longer Lord of my life. Who's Lord of my life? I am. Let's just cheat on this deal. Let's just cook the books. Let's just make an extra 50 grand here on this deal. Well, who's the Lord of your life? And you are denying the one who created you, the one who paid the price of all your sins, the one who put an, wants to put an umbrella of grace over your life. He, you are denying his lordship in your life. They do two things. They turn the grace of God into lewdness. And they deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is why Jude tells us that we need to contend earnestly for the faith. Because these men have crept in. I want to give you some history on the book of Jude to enlighten your eyes to exactly how powerful what Jude is telling us is. Uh, The book of Jude was written between 68 and 70 A.D., It was definitely written before the destruction of the temple, uh, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So about 68 to 70 AD. And what's amazing is, is the entire New Testament is already written at this time. It's already written and it's already circulating through all all the churches. The entire New Testament, except for John's writings, uh, the Gospel of John, uh, Revelation and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. But the entire New Testament is comp- already done and uh, circulating through the churches. And as a result, Christianity is growing rapidly through all of Turkey, through all of Greece, through all of Rome, through all of Asia Minor, by supernatural uh, exponential growth, by God's blessing, the church is just, the gospel is going out into all the world. If you're with us on men's ministry or in women's ministry, we're studying this right now. We're seeing how the gospel is going out throughout everywhere. And I want you to know, atheists and skeptics, they'll tell you, well, yeah, the New Testament wasn't even written until hundreds of years later after Jesus. Not true. By 68 AD, all of the New Testament was already written. That's like that. That's like right now at the time of Jesus already being circulated. All of the New Testament except John's writings. That's phenomenal. And uh, the church is just growing exponentially by God's supernatural blessing. But do you know what else is happening? Christian persecution is also running rampant. Nero is out of control. And his scapegoat is who? The Christians. He blames Christians for everything. If a dog pooped on Nero's lawn, it was the Christian's fault. That's just how Nero worked. And he's blaming for Christians for every problem in Rome. And what's amazing to me, at the time when Jude writes... Almost all the apostles have been martyred already. All the apostles except two have already been murdered. John and Simon the Zealot are the only two apostles still alive. All the rest have been murdered. And Jude has seen a lot of Christian persecution. He has lost many of his closest friends. James, his own brother, was martyred by Herod's sword in 44 AD. The apostle Philip, the evangelist, uh, he was tortured and crucified in Phrygia, where he pastored in 54 AD. 
The apostle Thomas was tormented with red hot steel plates that were made just red hot and put on both sides of his body until he burned to death. Little James, one of the apostles, was beaten to death with a fuller's club. And all he had to do was denounce, renounce Jesus' resurrection. He wouldn't do it. And they kept hitting him with a club until he died in 63 AD. Peter was crucified upside down in 64 AD. Matthew was beheaded in 68 AD. Paul was beheaded uh, by Nero in 69 AD. Thaddeus, one of the apostles, was beaten to death with rods. And yet Jude does not write to us about Christian perseverance under persecution. Do you know why? Because Jude is not really overly concerned about Christian persecution. You know what Jude is really concerned about? Apostasy. The greatest threat to Christianity is apostasy, not persecution. And that's why Jude writes this book. Apostasy is the greatest danger the church faced then in Jude's day, and it is the greatest danger the church faces today as well. I want you to know Christianity has many adversaries today. Islam, moral depravity, the attack on marriage and traditional family values, gender ideology being pushed in public schools, relative truth, homelessness, drugs, the emasculation of men, the attack on the patriarchy of the society, All of these things are real issues. AI and the propaganda that AI is going to bring in to our next generation. All of these things are concerns that the church must wisely address. But none of these things are the greatest danger of the 21st century church. What is the greatest danger of the 21st century church? It is apostasy. And you say, David, you've been using that word a lot. I don't even know what it means. Here's what it means. Apostasy is a turning away from orthodox biblical faith that exalts the preeminence of Jesus Christ as our creator and as our savior. As the God of all gods, as the king of all kings, as the Lord of all lords. Apostasy is believing in Jesus, but not obeying and not knowing his word. Apostasy is believing in Jesus, but not giving Jesus the preeminence as Lord over all of our lives, Lord over all of our heart, Lord over all of our mind, Lord of our deeds, Lord of our civil laws, Lord of our national policies, Lord of our values, Lord of our lives. You see, preeminence means the most important role, and it's not giving Jesus preeminence. That's what apostasy is. Jesus' preeminence as Lord of lords, Jesus' preeminence as Lord of all, is the only accurate view of Jesus that anyone can hold. And anything less than that is a lie, is a deception, is a perversion of who Jesus is. It has been well said and worth repeating that Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And so we want to be wise to that. The Bible is crystal clear on the subject that Jesus is Lord of all. And I love Colossians, how Colossians speaks of Jesus on this. Look at Colossians 1.15 uh, on your screens. Read with me. He, that's Jesus, read with me, church, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. 
For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, rather visible, rather thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Uh, by Jesus, he is the creator of the universe. Not only the creator of the physical universe, he's also the creator of the spiritual universe. And that's what he means by things visible and things invisible. Uh, thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, these are all spiritual beings. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Uh, we, we saw him. We got, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, let's go on, the rest of the verse. All things were created through him, and all things were created for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. That means he holds together the universe. It doesn't run by itself. Nothing does. Everything needs to be tuned and adjusted and kept in order, uh, including the universe. Uh, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We've read that term firstborn a couple times. Here's what it means. It doesn't mean that Jesus was the first thing that God created. That's not what it means. For Jesus is the creator. Nothing was made without him. Uh, everything that was made was made by him. Uh, so nothing could be made before him. He was the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, right? So what does it mean that he's the firstborn? Well, it means he is the first one that resurrected from the dead in a glorified body. He is the first, first one to receive that. Uh, <clears throat> that in all things, he may have what? Preeminence. And preeminence, again, means the most important position. I want you to know when a church loses the preeminence of Jesus as Lord of Lords, it is apostate. And apostasy is the greatest threat to Christianity, not persecution. The apostate church creates and worships their own version of Jesus. And can I tell you something? That version of Jesus is a lie. That version of Jesus cannot save us. That version of Jesus cannot take us from spiritual death to abundant life. That version of Jesus cannot transform our life. It is a different Jesus. And there are a lot of different Jesuses being propagated out in the world today. I want you to remember something. I want you to hold on to this. The real Jesus is immutable. Immutable. Tell me, what does immutable mean? unchangeable. The real Jesus is immutable. We cannot change Jesus because Jesus cannot be changed. And the Bible is crystal clear about this. I could give you scores of verses to, to prove this, but I'll give you a few just real quick. Here's one, Malachi 3. Uh, let me hear you read it. I am the Lord... I do not change ever, ever. I do not change. As I was pondering the immutability of this, of Jesus, I was just moved to worship. Look at this next one, Hebrews 13. Jesus Christ, read with me, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. Jesus is the same forever. One more, uh, James 1.16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Father of lights, what is that? Uh, it's talking about the creator of the universe. All the stars, all the suns that are in the universe that give light. Uh, Jesus created all of it, Right? And with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In other words, the real Jesus is immutable. God cannot change because he is perfect. I have good news for you. There is no God 2.0. 
There is no God 2.0. If God changed, he either wasn't perfect before or he isn't perfect now. If he changed, he, he either wasn't perfect before or he wasn't perfect now. God is always the same. And I tell you, this gives me great comfort. Again, as I was meditating on this passage and meditating on this truth, I actually fell to my knees in worship and just said, God, thank you that you are immutable. Jesus, you're amazing. And you say, David, you're weird. Why such a big deal? Why was that an important thing? Well, think about it. This gives me tremendous comfort to know that Jesus never changes. He's immutable. Why? Well, because for all of eternity... God's kindness and grace will reign. A thousand years from now, a hundred million years from now, you will be alive. And God's kindness and his mercy and his grace will reign. For all eternity, God will graciously provide everything that we need. God is a provider. He's our, he's our father. Uh, he does not change. In God's kingdom for all eternity, humility and selflessness will be esteemed as virtues to admire and to hold on to for all eternity. And I am so thankful because it is so wonderful to be around people who are humble and selfless. They're my favorite people to be around. And for all eternity, those will be the values of God's kingdom. Because he does not change. For all eternity, being gracious to others will be what is esteemed in the kingdom, the, the, the very currency of the kingdom, selflessness. For all eternity, the fruits of the Holy Spirit will abound in, 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 in great harvest in, in all of eternity. The fruits of the Spirit will abound. Love, gentleness, kindness, Self-control, selflessness, patience, all these beautiful fruits of the Spirit that make relationships so amazing. Uh, Why? Because the real Jesus is immutable. Today, there are 360,000 churches in the United States. The average attendance of these 360,000 churches are 125 members. Many of these churches in the United States have made up their own Jesus. They have departed from the orthodox biblical faith and they have fallen into apostasy. And they are in severe danger as a result. These churches have redefined who Jesus is. They have redefined morality. They have redefined marriage. They have redefined sin. They have redefined repentance. They have redefined righteousness. They have redefined love. And they say love is just loving everybody and just letting everybody do whatever they want to do. I love you. Love is basically worthless. Let me tell you something. Love is has been defined by Jesus Christ. And we need to have the right idea of love. We cannot redefine it. If you have a, uh, a child who's taking heroin, shooting up, love does not say, well, whatever you want to do, it's fine with me. I love you. No, 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 no. Love will say, I will jump through any hoop. I will climb any wall. I will climb any mountain. I will cross any desert to stop you from taking heroin. And it does the same thing to a two-year-old who is throwing a tantrum. No, 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 no. That's not how we act. We act this way. Why? Because love cares for the other person enough to say, I will not let you destroy your life with aberrant sinful behaviors that will ruin your life. And in churches across America, we are redefining Jesus and we are redefining love and we are apostate. 
And that is a problem. Let me ask you, how did prayer get taken out of public schools? Can I tell you? How did it happen? Through apostasy. How did marriage get redefined? How did homosexual men enter into the priesthood in church? How did satanic temples get built in our courthouses and in our government buildings and on every Hollywood awards show? How did it happen? Let me tell you, through apostasy in the church. The Bible makes it very clear. Listen, the time of God's judgment has begun. And if judgment begins in the house of the Lord, in the church, how then will the unrighteous be saved? This is the church's responsibility. And churches have redefined Jesus, have redefined morality, have redefined marriage, have redefined a bunch of things. And they are denying the true and living God. They have turned the grace of God into lewdness and they have denied the lordship of Jesus Christ, Jude says. The Lord isn't the Lord of the land. Why? Because the church is in apostasy. How did our children's schools become sex change shrines that trump a parent's right to even know what they are doing to our children? All of these things has happened because of apostasy in the church. Read verse four one more time. Let it sink into your heart. Certain men have crept in unnoticed. Who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. They crept into our church. They crept into our government. They crept into our our legislation. They crept into our schools. They're ungodly men. And they do two things. They turn the grace of God into lewdness. You just need to love everybody. Didn't Jesus say love everybody? Yeah, but you don't know what love is. You've redefined Jesus. You've redefined love. Secondly, you're denying the only Lord Jesus. He's not Lord of your life. You're doing life your way, not his way. And Jude says, hey, listen, you got to fight against this. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I'm telling you, I need to write to you to contend earnestly for the faith. It is so important. I want you to know an apostate church is a weak, worthless, and good-for-nothing church. It's good for nothing. It has no power to change a life. And it has no power to shape society. Jesus said some things to us that we need to take to heart. He said, you are the light of the world. That means me and you. You are the light of the world. You're to shine truth into these dark areas and expose cockroaches and reveal righteousness and bring truth. He said, you are the light of the world. He also said, you are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? Well, salt brings flavor to things and salt preserves. There were no refrigerators. If you had meat, you had to salt the meat and that would preserve the meat from becoming rancid and corrupt. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world to reveal truth of what love is and what love does to the rest of the world. And you are the salt of the earth to preserve the world and to keep it from decaying and growing rancid. Apostasy is a big problem in Christianity today. And this is why our nation and our education system and our universities and our government is unraveling at the seams. Why? Because the church is what? Apostate. And you say, that's kind of sad. That's kind of heavy. Hey, okay, it is. But know this. I have good news. Jesus is not far off. And he will heal us if we turn back to him. This is why Jude tells us, I want you to contend earnestly for the faith which was delivered once and for all for the saints. 
And take a look on your screens. That's verse 3. I want you to look at the word the. The definite article is there. And it's there in the Greek as well. Contend earnestly for what? The faith. I want you to know something. There are not many faiths. There is only one faith. And everything else is a counterfeit, a deception, and a perversion of the faith. The faith was established by God from the beginning of time, the plan of salvation revealed in the Garden of Eden and revealed over and over and over and over all through scripture. There is only one faith. It is the faith. And it was once and for all delivered to us. God brought it into fruition all by his power. There were many that tried to stop it and God's sovereignty prevailed and it will complete until the very end his plan of salvation for the earth. Jesus is coming back to rule and to reign. His plan is not off target, but we have to contend earnestly for the faith until he comes Jesus gave that instruction, occupy until I come. It's what he's called us to do. How do we contend earnestly for the faith? I'd like to throw that out to you as a question. I'd like to hear your answers. How do we contend earnestly for the faith? What do we do? Let me hear. We have to know his word. Either you are in first service or you're incredibly wise. I want you to know there is no other way to contend earnestly for the faith than by knowing God through diligent Bible study. There is no other way. We know God through his word, through the meditation and intense contemplation on the Holy Scriptures. By learning right doctrine, by learning God's word, by committing scripture to memory, by obeying and applying God's word in our life. Uh, I want you to know we do not contend for the faith by singing songs. Just doesn't happen. We do not contend for the faith by gathering for church every Sunday or by admiring the beauty of God's creation or by being nice to all of God's children, these things do not build our faith. It is through diligent Bible study and the understanding of God's word that builds our faith. And I tell you clearly, nothing else can and nothing else will. It is only the diligent Bible study that will build our faith. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.